This is Governor Larry Hogan, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, your go-to source for news and insight on Maryland policy and politics. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Today on the podcast, we are going to discuss pay-fors. We'll talk about a half or dozen or so things that could raise revenue for the state, things that are lingering out there. We'll discuss why they're on the table and the amount of money that they could potentially generate for the state. Now, we're talking about this today because we know that it's in the news with some big-ticket school items on the horizon. We know that the state already has a structural deficit. There's even been some talk about tax cuts here and there. But we also know there's political sensitivity around tax increases. So what we want to do today, Michael, is talk about what could be on the table if the state wanted to raise revenue without necessarily just going and changing tax rates. Right. And and I think that sets the table pretty well. This is a topic that has come up as we have gone out and talked with member counties. One of the things we always are talking about is the state's fiscal circumstance. And we know there's a little bit of softness in the state budget. We know that they, they have a structural problem in the years ahead. Even though the last year closed with a, with a cash surplus, we know that there's, there's needs ahead fiscally. And that's before you start spending money for recommendations from Carwin Commission or before you start talking about um, you know, other things that may be out there or you know, things that are coming up on the campaign trail and so forth. So, so this, this seemed like it would be a useful time to just do – I mean, we're not going to get into a whole lot of depth, but we'll do a whirlwind look at different things that are out there that could be meaningful fiscally to the state's bottom line. Yeah, it seems like it's the right time, the appropriate time to discuss this, especially because we've seen it so much in the news and we've heard a lot of talk around town about some of these ideas. So, Michael, let's first talk about the idea of just simply raising taxes, right? That's an idea that's out there. It's always out there. If there is a political will to do it, it's possible, but it seems like that could be in jeopardy. I mean, it's. I think I think we're going to give that short shrift here on purpose, and that's because it's not complicated to talk about. We have a sales tax rate that's effectively 6%. You could say, let's make it 65 or let's make it 7 It would theoretically raise a bunch of revenue, and that could be used to, to power some new program. So, yeah, that's that's always out there. Um, to, to be real, it's really the income tax and the sales tax are the two big workhorses for the state's general fund. So that's really where the money is. You can talk about other little odds and ends we've nibbled around with the estate tax and corporate income tax is its own piece. But if you're talking about trying to move the needle with the state budget in in, in the magnitude of hundreds of millions of dollars, you probably have to find money through the income tax or the sales tax. And if you just go change rates or you change brackets, you can generate more revenue. And then there'll be some, you know, some analysis of who is that going to affect and how do people respond politically. So that's kind of boring. That's not what we really want to focus on today, but it's, it's lying out there. So, Michael, I do want to ask you 
when people talk about the building block for the state budget, uh, what are they talking about? And, and what's this $100 million number that we hear about? So I, I do that a lot. I, I find it an easy way to try and explain. I mean, big numbers get distant from all of us, right? And so I, I will say everybody knows about balancing a budget, whether it's at your kitchen table or you're part of your homeowners association or you're, you know, you're on the board for a nonprofit or whatever. I mean, everybody understands that. And whatever group you're part of, you kind of scale to what they deal with. So around the house, you might very well be thinking in terms of your monthly budget and $50 is what really matters. Gee, are we going to be able to afford the extra cable package or do we need that $50 for Susie's clarinet lesson? Okay, that, that, that's fine. So $50 is kind of the working piece in a family budget. Sure. Um, and then maybe, you know, if you're if you're a small town in Maryland and you've got, you know, seven or eight employees and you have a small police force or whatever, you might be thinking, OK, ten thousand dollars is the meaningful building block of that budget. And our problem this year is one hundred thousand dollars. Let's find 20 here and 40 there and we'll get our work our way there. I think everybody who thinks about budgets thinks in a mentality of here's the building block. Well, in the state budget where the where the state's general fund is about 18 billion you start to have a problem if you're 3 or 4% off between revenues and expenses that adds up to 400 600 million dollars we tend to think in bricks of 100 million dollars you know if you're thinking about your home budget and then someone says well 100 million dollars is no big deal that sounds absurd so let's pull this to scale and say $100 million is like the unit currency for how do you, you know, how do you deal with state fiscal issues? So when you hear that number today, remember that that is the building block that we are yeah. using. While you may use a different block, this makes the most sense when we talk about the state budget. Right. So, so you know, this, this coming year, there may be a structural deficit in the state budget of something like $700 million, give or take. So that's a consequential number. That's a relatively big deal. If that number were only $100 million, it would be considered that's almost, you know, trivial. All right. So we talked a little bit about just raising taxes, what that means. Everybody understands what doing that would mean. It's relatively simplistic to do that as long as you have the political willpower. Yeah. And you could do it big or small. Like right. you, could, you could do tiny changes or big changes, and it's, it, yeah, it's scalable to, to whatever you want to accomplish. Other stuff we want to talk about today are maybe a little more discreet and have some more contours to them. Right. So let's jump right into sales tax on interstate sales. This is in the news with the recent Wayfair case decision, and this really opened the door for states to be able to tax on interstate sales. Yeah. And this was, we talked about this a, a few weeks ago when the case came from the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, this is, the, the Supreme Court has basically said, okay, the state governments now have the ability, if they want to, to try and gather, and, and, and basically it's the ability to require a seller to collect and remit the state sales tax for sales in your state, even if they're not physically there. And that was that's that was the hang up in prior law. Most most tax watchers knew this decision was coming, so it's not a surprise that it's happened. It's a matter of time now for states to decide whether they want to do it and how to go about it. So how to go about it, there is some question, right, about can this be done just administratively or is this going to take a bill? Are states grappling with that issue now and is Maryland trying to figure out how to best go about this? So I think multiple states are grappling with this and there are there are some jurisdictions that wrote laws anticipating a federal change 
to try and be ahead of the curve. Uh, Maryland hasn't done that. As, as we understand it, we've heard reported in the news that the Office of the Comptroller, um, you know, Comptroller administers and collects taxes for, for the state of Maryland. The Office of the Comptroller is looking at regulations that they could put out that wouldn't require legislation. I, I don't know whether that is the end of the story. So, so this is one that it might require the legislature to get involved. It might not. It might be just a matter of an administrative act that survives legislative scrutiny. Um, anytime a state agency does something, the legislature can show up and tell them not to do it anymore. So you'd sort of have to get past that. So this could happen either of those ways. But nominally, we could start seeing a new band of sales tax revenue show up to the state government. It's not a county government revenue, but to the state government um, you know, as soon as you know, a year or so from now. Right. And I think one of the interesting one of the interesting issues with this Wayfair decision is oftentimes when people talk about this and when I have conversations with people around town, they say, yeah, you know, all those big guys like Amazon, Walmart, they should all have to pay. They're not paying taxes. That's not right. These are the fat cats. But what people don't understand is that we're really not talking about Amazon and Walmart necessarily because they have an actual presence in the state of Maryland. Right. The, the, the folks that we're talking about are somewhere in the middle, correct? So this is the, if there were to be a, a broadened application of Maryland's sales tax to sales in the state from somebody outside the state, um, you wouldn't be newly newly catching sales tax on things like. Walmart has a website. We know there are plenty of physical Walmart stores in Maryland. They also have a website, and you can order something. They'll ship it to your house. You're you're already paying. They're already collecting sales tax on that sale, and the the state can force them to do that because they have a physical presence here. That's pre-Wayfair. Um, Amazon has moved into that territory in the last few years because they set up a distribution center in in Baltimore. So now they are across the country. They're starting to have such a broad network of delivery that they want to have you know warehouses and centers in, in multiple states. So they've become a taxpayer. Seven or eight years ago, Amazon was a tax-free place unless the buyer reported it herself. Right now, now purchases from Amazon themselves, not necessarily through a third party on Amazon, but uh, but through Amazon, are subject to sales tax. It's a middle ground. So it's a company. It always used to be LL Bean was the easiest example. Um, to the extent LL Bean doesn't have physical presences, they don't have a, a place in the mall, they don't have a standalone store in your hometown, but they have a big catalog, they have a big website, you can order. From stuff and it'll be shipped to you. That's the kind of company that the state can now reach out to them and say, Maryland has a 6% sales tax. If you're shipping to Maryland, charge 6% and send it to us. And that's an idea that is very popular with your local retailers, you know, old school brick and mortar businesses, especially if they are selling clothes, as does L.L. Bean. They don't want to have to compete in that way. So this is an idea that trumps up a lot of support from our local retailers. Yeah, new taxes don't typically get a hip hip hooray, but if you're the community of brick and mortar retailers, retailers who feel like the online people and the catalog people have an advantage because of the tax difference, then leveling that playing field, they think, gives them a better shot to compete. So there's a little bit of hippie So there is some support there. And Michael, how much are we talking about here? I mean, I don't think this is a massive 
amount of money. Is it around 100 to 200 million dollars is what the estimate is so far? That's probably that's probably a decent thumbnail. I don't think we've seen something specific. So, you know, we don't have a fiscal note from a bill that we can look at and say, well, the you know, the, the fiscal analysts in, in Maryland have already done all the homework here. But it's it's got to be in that neighborhood at the largest. Right. So, you know, if if we if, if the state said revenues are part of solving a $700 million budget problem, this wouldn't be the whole thing. You know, this could be a part of that. And I think several of the things that we plan to talk about today are going to fit into the same category of maybe it's a hundred, maybe it's a bit more than that, but there's, there's not a billion dollars lying under a couch cushion. But this could be one of the building blocks right. to, in, get, in to get us out of the deficit. Another option as we move on here is to broaden the sales tax base. And here in Maryland, we have a 6% sales tax, but this sales tax is almost exclusively on goods and not services, Michael. And it seems like our economy is moving away from that model overall. We're moving to more of a services-oriented economy yeah. rather than a goods-oriented economy. I think that's that's indisputably true, and it's almost... It's also uh, certainly true in Maryland that the Maryland economy has substantially less manufacturing and heavy goods than, than it once did. So, um, so that's, that's genuinely a trend and our sales tax is increasingly out of touch with the modern economy. Uh, I will tell you that this idea has been floating around in the ether in Maryland and in other states for an awfully long time. And the reason we don't see state after state after state making these big reforms is once you start getting into the details, this gets really tricky. So, you know, at the one sentence level that our modern economy is increasingly built on services rather than goods, why do we have a tax structure for the 1900s? And part of the answer is, well, do you really want to apply the 6% sales tax to an engineer or an attorney or a doctor? Your local or, dry cleaners, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's, there's some things that, that, that might be, you know, politically speaking, they might be lower hanging fruit than others. And I mean, you can make policy arguments about, I don't know. I mean, I think to me, the classic one is I go to take my car to get work done and I buy a part and then someone installs it and you charge sales tax on the part, but not on the labor. Right. And nominally, okay, why, you know, is that is that a sensible policy? I mean, is there something so fundamentally different about why well, have a new muffler as opposed to well, the muffler's useless unless someone attaches it to the car? Um, anyway, and it goes into you know, what about a watch repair or what about shoe repair or dry cleaning or all these other sorts of things? There's you know, there's class issues and and you know tax incidents on different income swaths and so forth, um, but also you know once a company feels they're being singled out for new taxes, imagine what the dry cleaners would do if there's a bill in to say sales tax on dry cleaning, they'll all be here, they'll all show up and they'll be in Annapolis talking about how unfair it is to their customers and their businesses and so forth. Yeah, and it's it's so, almost you know be careful what you wish for, and also again this is politically sensitive because when constituents find out that they're going to have to pay taxes at the local dry cleaners or when you get your car repaired, you're going to have to pay tax on the repair instead of just the part. You know, I can imagine some people being upset about that. Yeah. And especially if you know, if the interest group, you know, if the dry cleaners association puts up a giant billboard at every dry cleaner saying, you know, call your state senator and tell her to vote against this stupid thing. And then people see that and they pick up the phone and call and so forth. That's it's a, it's, it's built in lobby. Right? So you're telling me we may have a bunch of dry cleaners running around town. Like all these people 
from <laughs> national organizations coming into right. Annapolis, you know, making sure that doesn't happen. I mean, we've seen this happen in in Annapolis mm-hmm. in bits in, in you know in fits and starts. There have been bills put in in the past to try and do this writ large and have a forty page long bill that that wipes out all sorts of different exemptions and clarifies all sorts of different things that are in. But that's a day long hearing and everybody's screaming and yelling. It's a very it's a very difficult policy issue once you get into the specifics and then it turns out well you know the dry cleaners are only getting you 28 million so you probably don't need that one piece they're really upset and you start ticking things off the list you're like well the only way to make big money like big budget solving money out of taxing services is to go after the expensive professional services you you know you hire an engineer for your firm because you're about to build a new you know build a new building you bring on an architect and an engineer and they do a bunch of work for you you charge six percent on that forty thousand dollar bill that generates twenty four hundred bucks. That's the way to make real money for the state government. But yeah, that's that's a big ask. So so going after you know like the engineers or lawyers, right. you know, That's another big one. That's going to stir up a big fight. They'll all definitely show up yeah. here in Annapolis. It'll be a day long hearing. But that's where the real money is. I, I know that Michael in the in two thousand seven in a special session they the General Assembly passed a tech tax and yeah. that was sales on IT services but that was immediately repealed when they came back in January. Yeah, it was it was, a, it was a fall special session and and as part of a big, you know, solve the structural deficit package. Honestly, it was 2007 and and they said we're going to we're going to hike up our pants and get all this stuff Those done and all times, these sort of right? things, right? But uh, they had a they had a four week long special session in October November of that year. Left town with the last piece of the puzzle was we're going to apply the sales tax to technology, you know, computer services and things like that. And the hue and cry over just that one piece. When they came back to January, they banged the gavel and they immediately repealed it. And so we got to come up with something else. So it sounds easy when you start getting into the details, and even that one piece caused so much anxiety and consternation. Yeah. As you start checking the boxes down all these professions, it gets more and more complicated. So, I mean, I mean, this is no surprise, but the reason these things are still on hypothetical lists is because they're difficult. I mean, if they were easy and painless and this was just, you know, there's this old saying, don't tax you, don't tax me, tax the man behind the tree. If you find the way to just tax the man behind the tree, then we'll, we'll, we'll already have done that. Sure, sure. <laughs> we'll do it, yeah. All right, so we've talked about Sales tax on interstate sales. We talked about just simply raising taxes. We've talked about broadening the sales tax base. Michael, now let's get into maybe more of a complicated issue and one that I will let you take the lead on. And and this is combined reporting for corporate income tax. And this is a complicated idea, although it sounds good to some voters. So it, it does. This is another one that has a superficial appeal. And at least so far, the debate in Maryland has kind of petered out, um, principally in the Senate committee that does tax policy, the Budget and Taxation Committee. Uh, a bill like this has been in probably the mo- most of the last eight or ten years and gets a variety, you know, some level of consideration, some back and forth, but they haven't been able to, to, to strike something through. The, the basic idea is for big companies, not not the mom and pop restaurant who have one little place in Dundalk and every all their businesses here in Maryland. That's not affected by this. This is for big companies that do business across multiple states or all around the world, but they have some activity here in Maryland. So just as an example, maybe right. Under Armour. 
Sure. I mean, Under Armour is kind of a weird example mm-hmm. because they're physically big here and so forth, but like any big company. Right. So, you know, so 3M or whomever, um, you know, big companies, you know, Olive Garden as a, as a, as a, as a conglomerate or whatever, like Darden, right? Darden owns that, yeah. right? Exactly. So anyway, but you know, big companies like that that have activity here that they make a profit on, um, but they also have activity in other states or other countries. The the general process is you run the numbers and then you apportion out, okay, well, the the share of our profits that's attributable to our business in Maryland is 5% of the total. So we made $100 billion, but $5 billion is going to be what we attribute to Maryland, and you tally that up and you pay your taxes based on it. So the, the issue here is... This is a complicated endeavor, and nobody from the outside of any company is going to necessarily know exactly all those inside tips. So you you can be armed with auditors from the IRS and so on and so forth to try and untangle whether they're doing it right. But there's a lot of things that that are effectively legal and above board that can allow a company to isolate their profits in one place. And particularly, they might want to isolate those profits in a place where they won't suffer tax consequences. So overseas, maybe down in the Cayman Islands, <laughs> right. right? It makes yeah. sense to want to do that. I mean, there, there was, I mean, this is the this is the anecdote that I think everybody tells in this story. But years ago, this is actually about Toys R Us. You know, so moment of silence for Jeffrey the giraffe. But yeah, so so Jeffrey the giraffe is a central player in tax avoidance policy. Was well, a central player. Yes. Well, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Now he's now he's in the witness protection program. Yeah. I think. Yeah. He may be in Guam. I mean, yeah, he might be. He's, <laughs> if he's in Guam, good for him. Right. Yeah. Not bad. So so the, what happened? I mean, Toys R Us was a classic, you know, multi-state international company, and they had a profitable business. They had locations in Maryland like other places. But when you looked at the books for for Toys R Us, you'd find out they actually have relatively little profit for Toys R Us Incorporated. Because what really happened was every Toys R Us store and every outlet paid a licensing fee to a company called Jeffrey Incorporated. So it was basically the name and the likeness of Jeffrey the Giraffe, who used to be the the sort of um, the the logo and pitch you know pitch character for Toys R Us. Right. So for the right to use the Jeffrey likeness, each Toys R Us paid a whole bunch of money, which amounted to most of their profits. So when it came time to pay taxes in Maryland or California or any place else, they'd kind of turn their pockets inside out and say, "Oh, Toys R Us isn't really making any money." As it turns out, the Jeffrey Company, who's over in Nevada or you know in Ireland or whatever, that's where all the profits are really located because it's all it's all in licensing. So that's one of these stories where if you have a state law that says we want to see all the books so we can pull it all together and come up with a fairer way to apportion your your profits that might bring some companies to the table in a fairer way. So the idea of combined reporting, let's take a look at all your subsidiaries, all your back and forth maneuvers and so forth, report all that stuff, and then we'll get our fair share, and Kentucky will get theirs, and California will get theirs, et cetera. Now talk about backlash. <laughs> so this yeah. one, I mean, this one gets complicated too, and uh, this has been years in the discussion phase, bills have been introduced, even, even the hypothetical how much money money would this raise, uh, there are folks in, in the industry, in the 
taxpaying community saying you could pass this, you might lose money because because the underarmers of the world and so forth might find you know this this actually you know we run the numbers differently under these laws and it'll it'll turn different than what you got today. Uh, no one knows what the bottom line here is. A lot of people suspect it's a hundred or two hundred million dollars of new in, um, corporate income tax revenue that could be showing up to the state, but no one knows for sure. And the pill has proven pretty bitter to swallow. So we've discussed, in addition to simply raising taxes, we've discussed three other potential sources of revenue. And each of those, Michael, I think we've said would be potentially 100 to 200 million. So not a ton of money, but you know, adding them up, if somehow you did all of this, you'd be starting to chip away at the deficit. And, and I mean, you know, Mako is not, you know, we're not advocating any of this stuff. I mean, so far, we really haven't even talked about anything that's a county revenue. Right. It, it's just like, like with your start, um, the conversation about, well, how would you do these things for education? Or how could the state make these new commitments? Or how or just how are we going to untangle the structural deficit that gets up over a billion dollars over the next couple of years? Um Issues like this may be on the table, either in the General Assembly or within the budget proposal that comes from the governor in, in future years. So and it seems relevant to think about even if you know, most of this stuff is really not, not even county slash Mako kind of stuff. All right. We're going to go ahead and take a quick break. But don't worry, we have some controversial ideas <laughs> coming up after the break. We'll talk about legalizing and taxing cannabis. We'll talk about legalizing and taxing sports wagering. And then we'll get into the state property tax. That's a conversation right there. All that and more after the break. To the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, let's talk about one of the more controversial ideas that is floating around out there. We've heard other states implementing this idea, legalizing and taxing cannabis. So we've heard about this on the campaign trail here in Maryland and nationally. This is politically would probably require a ballot measure. We saw a bill uh, last session that would have put this on the ballot. That bill failed. So you won't see this on the ballot this year. But let's get into the idea of legalizing and taxing cannabis and what kind of revenue that might generate for the state of Maryland. Yeah. So I. I I mean, this is a topic that could be its own episode or probably its own podcast. Sure. But um, I I don't know. I've lost count of how many states have either had ballot measures or by courts or by by legislation have have adopted – I guess I guess the term of art is adult use cannabis or marijuana. Um, the the notion that you know, I mean Maryland's among many states where we now have a a medical use. If you if you get a recommendation from a physician, uh, there are places where you can buy it. Uh, but to have it be something that is legal, licensed, and taxed within the state. Um, is a step further. <clears throat> I, I've lost count of how many states have done it, but it's not. It's no longer two or three oddball places. Yeah, so recreational cannabis for adult use is mm-hmm. legal in nine states, okay. and medical cannabis is in 30 states. And right. I believe 
All of them have been done through a ballot initiative, with exception of Vermont, who just mm-hmm. passed legislation to legalize right. adult-use cannabis. Right. So, so who knows if that? I mean, so we can't speak with authority as to how this would happen. It seems like it's a candidate for a ballot measure that there might be legislators who might not love the idea, but could be sold on put it before the citizens, and if they vote for it, who am I to get in the way? That's that's what's yeah, we, happened on some... We hear all the time polls that say most people are in favor of doing this, or, you know, depending on the source yeah, of the poll, but right. it seems like I've heard a lot of polls that say a lot of people would be in favor of, of allowing this to happen. Right. I think it's one of those issues that's changed. I mean, the, the perception on the subject has changed over the last, you know, 10 years or so. So, um, I mean, what would this look like in Maryland? We don't know. We don't know how the bill would look. But if we try and learn from what's happened in other states that have gone ahead in this direction, we could at least have some idea. So, uh, I mean, the state of Colorado was one of the first to, to move on this. They did it with a ballot measure. Um, there were some interesting components in what they did in Colorado. One piece being they, they when it passed – there also there immediately became a provision that each county and city across Colorado could pass their own ordinance to say what well, we don't want it here. Right. And apparently that's the case. If you look at a map of Colorado, the places where it is, quote, legal versus not legal, it's actually the majority of the acreage or space of the state. It's still not legal. Right. But in some of the big population centers, that's yeah, the, where the, yeah, the revenue is coming right. from. Right. In Denver and Boulder and so forth, I think they've I think it's legal in, in most most of the big metro areas. So population-wise, the majority of citizens have access or nearby access. You drive to the next town or whatever. So, right. um, but so so they've they've gone ahead with adult use and have it have a, 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 I guess a couple different levels of taxes that apply. And I mean the specifics of the tax rates and so forth. I guess are up in the air. But um, I mean they generate a couple hundred million dollars uh, from it thereabouts, right? Yeah. So they generated about two hundred and fifty million dollars in 2017. And the way it works there is there is a 15% retail cannabis sales tax on all sales of retail cannabis or retail cannabis infused products. And so that charge is uh, passed on to the final consumer purchase. Then there's also an excise tax. And that is when whoever is growing the cannabis passes it along to a storefront, mm-hmm. they're paying 15% excise tax as well. Right. Okay. So, so I mean, there, there's some level of taxes there and that's been used. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm sure there's a public debate about that money being used for certain things, whether it's a education or infrastructure or whatever. All those are political decisions, but just the scope of this, I mean, I mean Colorado is population-wise almost the size of Maryland. We're just a little bit larger. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that probably frames the size here um i don't i don't know what we would decide with specifics in a maryland law but if we ended up with doing something that looked like and felt like the colorado law that could be two or three hundred million dollars in in presumably state revenue so i mean you know potentially that could be another thing on the books but we're back to how do you get it done in the state and if you assume that Maryland would go the path that most states have and do this as a ballot measure, the soonest you could have it would be consideration by the citizens in 2020. Right. And again, there was a bill last session to, to put it on the ballot this year, but that bill failed. So yeah, now we're looking at 2020 before this issue could be on the ballot. So a couple of years down the road. Yeah, you only do it in even even numbered years. So that's the soonest you could have something would be that fall. And then presumably you'd have to have some writing of rules 
rules and so forth. I mean, maybe you could have a, a piece of legislation that accompanied it that made it all happen together. But probably the soonest you'd be seeing revenue would be like the end of the of fiscal 2021 into fiscal 2022. So if you were looking at this as something that's going to arrive quickly to pay for a first installment of something – you either need to get it off the ballot and have it be just a legislative enactment, or you're going to have to wait a couple of years. Right. And, and speaking of that, here we have another issue, which is legalizing and taxing sports wagering. And the Supreme Court, again, opened the door here. It's no longer off limits for states. And that would definitely require a ballot measure, a constitutional amendment here in Maryland. Right. This is another situation where, in anticipation of the court's ruling, some states went ahead and passed laws that would enable them to have the ability to do this as long as the Supreme Court said, okay, again, we had legislation here in Maryland, the bill didn't pass. So this is another situation where this would have to be a constitutional amendment. And that's our own doing, too. Um, Yes. So it's, it's not that in every state this would have to be a constitutional amendment, but in Maryland, when when the big political deal was struck to open the door to slots, uh, the whole pledge was, we'll put it on the ballot. And the way to do that was to actually make it a constitutional amendment that these are the locations and so forth. And we'll license process and so forth is now written in the state constitution. And then there was an extra clause saying any future expansion of gaming or gambling would have to be done through amendment to the constitution. So when, when the state went back a few years afterward, and decided they wanted an extra site in Prince George's County and wanted to expand to table games that also required citizen approval through a constitutional amendment. So if you want to do if you want to do sports wagering, whether it's at those facilities or horse race tracks or whatever you're going to do, you can't just pass a law. You can't just put it in the budget. You got to put it before the citizens in an even numbered year. So again, 2020 would be the year. And we talked about you know when talking about cannabis, we said there have to be regulations, and so potentially you're talking about the end of 2021 before you'd start seeing this revenue. We hear a lot about. People saying, well, you know, Maryland really shot themselves in the foot and, you know, other states are are potentially going to be ahead of the curve when it comes to getting these policies in place to allow sports betting in their states. So, for instance, Pennsylvania, Delaware, New Jersey, all of them potentially could be ahead of the game. Yeah, we know New Jersey is well ahead of us. They were the they were the chief litigant at the at the U.S. Supreme Court. So they are they were all ready to go. They're already taking bets. They're taking bets. I think Pennsylvania is well on their way, too. And this. This is similar to what was happening with slots on and around horse racing facilities that that Maryland were several years behind all the states in our region. And one of the compelling arguments that got Maryland on board with that trend was all the Maryland license plates at the Delaware racetracks, the Pennsylvania racetracks, West Virginia racetracks, so forth. So so the idea was we don't want that money leaving Maryland. Let's just let them do it here. But when we when we when we get down to the nitty gritty here, this isn't a ton of money, Michael. Again, maybe a hundred, two hundred million dollars. So we hear all of these conversations going on about how Maryland's really missed the boat. But the bottom line is, this is not a ton of money that we're I talking about. I can't fathom this is. It may not even be that big. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's a hundred or more. But I mean, it's possible that you run this whole thing through the ringer, and especially if. New Jersey has gone legal and Pennsylvania has gone legal and West Virginia will probably do it too. I mean, if you end up with the surround. 
surrounding states already establishing this marketplace, then just retaining the people from Maryland and getting some of the occasional tourist. I mean, who knows? This might turn into 40 million, 80 million or something like that. You know, a relatively small figure in terms of those building blocks for the state budget. So sidebar here. I mean, if you are if you own a sports book in Las Vegas, what are you thinking in terms of impact that you're going to suffer now because the Supreme Court has opened this up Damn. to states and said, you know, you can do it here. So maybe people who were doing business with that sports book in Las Vegas or they're going to Las Vegas for big events like the Super Bowl because they want to make these bets and prop bets and right, be able right. to watch the game and continuously bet. What what are you thinking if you own a sports book in Las Vegas right now? Are you worried? Yeah, you'd have to be, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean that's been you you've basically had a franchise that the only place that this was allowed with like tiny little exceptions. Right. Little, little old Delaware got some special exception you can make these crazy three-way bets on on professional football games only, but but generally speaking to make legal sports bets the only place was Nevada, and now suddenly that whole wall breaks down. I mean, if if five years from now you end up with thirty five states have put this on the books, and and you know you can just you know walk into a walk into a Walmart or walk into a racetrack or a local casino or whatever, then maybe some of that mystique of I mean, Las Vegas usually finds a way to to, to yeah. figure things out, and I think they'll be okay. Find but... something that that'll they'll be attractive to to Americans and right. and otherwise, but but. Uh, you know, this particular angle might might no longer be a special part of Vegas. Right? Yeah, I mean, I think you'd have to be worried if you were out there. All right, so we've gone through a couple of the controversial issues here on the second half of the podcast, and we've talked about cannabis, we've talked about legalizing and taxing sports wagering. Now, Michael, we said we're not going to look at simply raising the tax rate, but the state property tax is probably worth mentioning because the state property tax is set by the Board of Public Works after the General Assembly leaves town. And in theory, that rate is set to cover debt service. But we mm-hmm. know that right. it's falling short. So we're putting general revenue dollars yeah. to cover our debt service. And what would be the idea here with BPW and how would you raise money? Obviously, you raise the state uh, property tax, but what are the implications of that? How would it work? So I, I think there's a few things about this that are interesting. Again, you know, this isn't Mako advocating for this or, or saying we think this is a great idea, but um, there, are, there are reasons why the state property tax is different than the other stuff we've talked about, than the income tax or the sales tax and so forth. And number one is I would imagine if you walked around and you asked a hundred Marylanders what taxes do you pay to the state of state of Maryland, relatively few would mention a property tax. Right, they would talk about sales tax and income tax right. because and you get a property tax bill from your county or in some cases from your town. So that that's who sends that's who does property that's the business of local government is you get a property tax bill right. and you pay it you you have an escrow or that sort of stuff. I mean everybody understands property taxes and we don't. You don't get four of them. You don't get layer upon layer of property tax. You get one consolidated bill. So you're saying most people think that yeah. bill is just your county tax. Yeah, more right? or less. Or, no or, or it's county and city together. Sure, if you, sure. if you, but, but not a state. Yeah. Tax. So so buried on that big property tax bill, as it turns out, is 11.2 cents, which is the state property tax rate. And that's actually applied a little bit differently. It's part of, there's a part of your property tax bill that is really tedious to try and understand how the assessable base works. And if you're getting a homestead credit and what all these sorts of things, it can be difficult to follow what's on the bill. Right. So I think the, the the mere existence of a state property tax kind of flies under the radar to begin with. 
Now, you also mentioned the way that tax rate is set. I mean, this is a beautiful thing if you're standard and poor's and you want to judge how secure is the ability of a bondholder from Maryland, how how comfortable should they be that they're going to pay it off? And it turns out a three-member panel convenes after the legislature's gone home, after the budget's been put to bed. So everything's and, balanced. And they can set the tax rate at whatever it takes to pay the debt service. Well, that's that's a beautiful system. When we're a AAA state for a variety of reasons, but one of them is because we have this backstop that there's a small group of people who are a little bit more isolated politically um, who can vote to do the right thing if they have to, to make sure bondholders get paid off. Right. So that is a huge reason why we have that AAA bond rating in Maryland is constantly yeah. one of the you know, the best states in terms of bond ratings. So so when you when you put those two things together, the, the fact that the state property tax rate is not very well understood or well known, and that the mechanism for setting the rate is a little bit backwards and backdoor and kind of weird, um, that feels different than just raising the income tax rate. So, I mean, you, you, you started getting into how this debate sort of sets up. And right nominally, the system was always supposed to be the Board of Public Works will set the tax rate at whatever it takes to pay off that year's debt service on all of our bonds. So we float bonds to build schools and to build buildings on our campuses and jails and other things like that. We, we borrow that money to do that. We pay debt service to pay down those bonds over years. We do our own financing, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, okay, you have to, you have to pay, you know, $950 million in debt service or some number, you know, in that neighborhood each year. And of late, the revenue that comes from the state the state 11.2 cents, where it's been stuck for a number of years, mm-hmm. is insufficient to pay the debt service. Right. So for FY18, state property taxes provide around $800 million. And, you know, to support the debt service without raising those property taxes, the general fund accounted for about $263 million just to close that gap. Right. So I, you know, so the system is supposed to work where this rate is set to cover debt service, but in reality, a lot of general fund money is, is, is going in there as well. And so as, as, as long as the, as long as the governor puts the money into the budget and the general assembly leaves it there and says, we're going to take whatever, $263 million and use it toward debt service. Then when the Board of Public Works convenes, they already know that the today's tax rate is going to make up the difference between what we've put in and what we need. So what would happen <laughs> if the General Assembly said, no, we're, we're not going to do it. We're cutting that out. You deal with it at Board of Public Works. Right. So either, I mean, either the governor could just not put it into the budget sure. and or the General Assembly could take it out of the budget and pass a budget that doesn't include that. And the backstop would basically be called into effect. So just by Maryland structure of government, in theory, this this ball could be handed from the General Assembly to the Board of Public Works for so, them to decide what to do. So the governor, the comptroller, and the treasurer. Right. So that's a three-member body who would be convening probably in the month of May. Now, they, they would know this is coming, but you sit down in the month of May and – nominally the rules more or less suggest that you have to go raise the taxes. So if it takes another five cents on the property tax rate to make up the difference, you know, to, to fully offset all the debt service with just property tax revenue, then they'd sort of be duty bound to raise it by five cents. Now, 
the reality is the Board of Public Works has other authority, and among the things they can do is they can cut the budget that's been enacted by the General Assembly. So they could say, we're not going to do that. What we're going to do instead is cut $300 million out of the general fund in here and there and here and there. We'll pass all these cuts, and now now the, yeah, that money's just going to fall to the bottom line, and the governor will... You know, in some fashion, find that money to get its way into the um, into the special account that takes care of debt service. From a county perspective, and again, we are not advocating on behalf of raising the state <laughs> property tax or lowering it or anything. But just because we mentioned earlier, you <laughs> as a resident of a county, you're you get your bill, you're looking at it, you think this is my county property tax. Right. All of a sudden, <laughs> next year. The bill's a little bit more. Right. You're paying $400 more than last year. It's like, my house didn't get a whole lot more valuable. What's going on here? So so are you going to call the state or are you going to call your local representative? So is the county executive going to get a call or is it going to be the state? Right. Yeah. That seems like a- Whose name is on that tax bill? Right. It's not Larry Hogan. It's like Barry Glassman, right? Right. So that could be thorny, right? (laughs) I mean, people could think that it's the county when reality is it's the state. So, I mean, it's it's a strange structure. It's a weird thing that Maryland does. There are reasons why it is the way it is. It leaves the state property tax as an oddball. And that's why we thought it was worth talking about on this list of things. Because, you know, I don't know, if they're putting every card on the table, I guess all this kind of stuff could be out there. And maybe none of this has to happen. It may be that revenues just do well because of the economy and beat our estimates and as it turns out our structural problems aren't so bad it may mean they may have you know plans that make whatever the education commitments are affordable and so forth i don't i don't know that this you know anything like this is going to happen but i think just as a as a practical matter this is in the breeze a little bit it seemed worth talking through so we've gone through a number of different options for raising additional revenue for the state michael any closing thoughts here anything else that we left off this list that you want to get in before we go ahead and uh, move on? Well, just one thing that I think uh, I think our loyal listeners will be happy to hear. Um, Mako is happy to have you, Kevin, moving into our lead policy role, working on revenue and financial and tax issues, um, in no small part to having spent tons and tons of time with me on the air with our podcast listeners talking about federal tax reform, income tax issues, and now all these other revenue raisers and so forth. Um, I think you know, you've proven yourself comfortable in these areas, and uh, you'll be out front on them this coming legislative session. Big shoes to fill. I will certainly uh, miss some of the education policy, but I think we'll all still be plugged in a bit there. So that's a good thing, but I appreciate the congratulations. All right, that'll do it for this week's episode. We will be back next week. I assume Michael will focus more on the news of the week since today we were you know, in our cycle where we do more of a deep dive on a certain issue. We'll do a roundup next week. Sounds good. All right. We'll do a roundup next week. Until then, Michael and Kevin signing off. We will talk to you soon.